Hello, good evening, good day, everybody, and welcome to the latest episode of the Ask Abhijit Show. Today we discuss, as you know, uh, current affairs, geopolitics, history, and all that wonderful stuff. So, before we begin, let's see who all is present with us in attendance. I can see Rajiv, Akshay, Sampriti, Sri Harsha, Ankita, Crazy Brain Blades, Navneet, Alpha, Raxter, Ananya, Pushkar, Animish, Sauraj, Gigachad. Kuldeep, Enon Dutt, Durga, Abhay, Vikramaditya, Ajit, Kusro, Ripon, Vilo, Siba, Nitin, Shubham, Sagar, Priyanshi, Azmenor, RTK, Leo, Heartbreaking, Priyanshu, Rohan, Raviraj, Pankaj, Saurabh, Decoding Elections, Bimla, Mosam, Raxter, Chiching, Ajit, Roxy, Abhi, Haripriya, Trupti, Blades, Himanshu, Bonfire, Ravi Raj, Om, Manish, Mehul, Arnab, Abhay, and lots of other people. Good evening, good day to all of you, wherever you are. I hope you're all doing very well. And some more. Sangeet, Chaitanya, Siddharth, Grey White, Ajay Kumar, Banti, Vijay, Shivam, Mahesh Patil, Yug, Rahul, Saturn, Avanish, Devi, Intellectual Indian, Suraj, Mehul, Sai Kiran, Linneshwar, and uh, Sharifa, Harshit, Kevin, Divya, Harsh, Satvik, Ajiri, Ruby Snow, and lots of other people. Good evening, good day, all of you. Great to have you all on this show this evening when there's an India-Pakistan cricket match going on. So I can understand if there are a, a, a little fewer people as, than usual. But hey, I'm here. So uh, before we begin, this episode is sponsored by Abhijit Chavda Academy, my new course that I've launched. It's a course on Indian history, in case you are not aware of it. it's uh, The link is in the description below. It's a course that is still a work in progress. I'm going to cover the entirety of Indian history, more or less in that, especially ancient Indian history. So that's a course that I've launched. It's available uh, now. Uh, the link is in the description. I look forward to seeing you all in there if you are interested. Otherwise, you can always watch my channel, which has way more material than the course. But the course is structured in a certain way and it's chronological. So maybe that's something in case you're interested in, you can acquire. So that's uh, the thing. Now let's get into the questions. Let's get into the questions. What questions do we have today? And let's go into question number one. Question number one is by Sahil Joshi. I have noticed multiple times that the Ministry of External Affairs of India gives kind of polite and sometimes assertive statements against any nation that tries to act against India or Indian interests in some or the other way. It gives me the feeling that some countries are taking India for granted. At the same time, other countries give aggressive statements even to the slightest issue. Do you think India has a very soft and less aggressive, less assertive approach? Do you think India should be a little more assertive in countering such statements from other nations? All right. I would tend to agree with you overall that the Ministry of External Affairs of India is, is very... Uh, it, it, it gives very soft statements, very gentle, non controversial, non-aggressive, non-assertive statements, very conciliatory, kind of meek. You know, that sort of, uh, that's that's the pattern that you observe overall when it comes to the Ministry of External Affairs of India. Uh, for instance, in the US, in China, you have these daily press briefings of their ministries of external affairs. In the case of India, it's like once a week. Yeah. So it, it, gives, it gives you the feeling that India is not a major player on the geopolitical scene. You only have once a week press conferences and very bland, diplomatic, uh, you know, non-assertive statements and so on. That's what you see. Now, I have said this in the past. Let me say, say this again. Diplomacy is 
war by other means right and the strength of your diplomatic statements is a direct reflection of your overall geopolitical strength your comprehensive national power so if you have a nation that is a small nation with a small economy and a small military it cannot afford to be assertive uh, diplomatically the strength of your diplomacy is directly proportional to your overall strength the larger the stick the hard power you hold the more assertive your diplomacy can be american diplomats are very brash they are sometimes very undiplomatic it's because the us is a global geo ge geopolitical hegemon it's the only superpower the chinese are now aspiring to be a superpower since since 2012 they have changed their approach they they are now indulging in what they what is called a uh, wolf warrior diplomacy very aggressive very assertive diplomacy very brash statements very harsh statements right and india is not there yet india is still a three something trillion dollar economy we are not even a 5 trillion dollar economy as your economy grows your military strength grows strength grows once you reach a certain stage you can afford to speak in a different way diplomatically so this style of your diplomacy is a direct reflection of your overall standing in the geopolitical chessboard right so yes i agree that we that the diplomacy that india does is kind of kind of a little bit submissive kind of meek that's what the chinese did for the longest time they swallowed all the insults that the western nations heaped upon them chinese diplomats before 2012 were always conciliatory meek humble non confrontational non assertive non aggressive they had this policy for the longest time they swallowed all the insults it's only after 2012 that they changed their approach Deng Xiaoping said, uh, hide your strengths and bide your time, right? He said that in the, in the late 20th century. And that's what the Chinese followed for the longest time. India also needs to follow this approach. There's no point making very strong diplomatic statements if you cannot back them up with actual facts on the ground, with actual military strength, right? Now, let me also point something out. I mean, recently there has been some some interesting diplomacy from India, which is something that's not that I've not seen before. Let me put that on the screen. So recently, the Chinese uh, ambassador in Sri Lanka made some ridiculous statements about India. That India has uh, uh, been aggressive against Sri Lanka like seventeen. India has visited aggression on Sri Lanka seventeen times. That, that sort of thing, without naming India, but he referred to the northern neighbor, which is only India, right? So he made some very uh, injudicious and uh, false statements about India, and this was the response. This this came in yesterday from Indian uh, from the Indian uh, diplomatic mission in Sri Lanka. It says we have noted the remarks of the Chinese ambassador. His violation of basic diplomatic etiquette may be a personal trait or reflecting of a na larger national attitude. How <laughs> sarcastic and scathing that is. His view of the Sri Lanka of Sri Lanka's northern neighbor may be colored by how his own country behaves. India, we assure him, is very different. His imputing a geopolitical context to the visit of a purported scientific research vessel is a giveaway. Opaqueness and debt-driven debt agendas are now a major challenge, especially for smaller nations. Recent developments are a caution. Sri Lanka needs support, not unwanted pressure or unnecessary controversies to serve another country's agenda. This is, I believe, the harshest diplomatic statement I've ever seen India issue. In my entire, I mean, my in my living memory, I have never seen India issue such a strong and harsh and scathing diplomatic statement. I mean, it it is still a classy statement. It's not it's not uh, vulgar and impolite, but it's scathing, right? And it it 
makes things very clear that the, the Chinese are lying and the Chinese have put Sri Lanka into the debt trap which they do to other nations and yeah and the entire uh, the the entire matter of the Chinese spy ship that came to Sri Lanka that docked there it obviously has a geopolitical context and all that mm-hmm. so this is I believe a break from India's tradition. I've never seen such a strong and harsh diplomatic statement from India. Now, some very intelligent people are telling me on Twitter that India should have sunk the Chinese vessel very quietly. Uh, those people need, they have a lot of growing up to do, I would say. Yeah. Sinking a, a, a major research vessel, a spy ship, quietly. I mean, what are you people smoking? So, yeah. So, anyway, that's a different matter. So, my point is this we are seeing slightly more assertive diplomacy from India. It's something that can only be a reflection of India's overall geopolitical strength and standing. Diplomacy is a direct reflection of your hard power, right? And India still isn't a major, major uh, power in Asia. India is the only nation that can stand up to China and we are showing it from time to time. But India has a long way to go before India can change its diplomatic approach. Right, India needs to become, I would say, a ten trillion dollar economy before India can change its diplomatic approach. Five trillion dollars is the first milestone we have to reach, and then ten trillion dollars. When you reach that status, ten trillion dollars, then the Chinese will realize that there is nothing they can do about India. India is, it is what it is. If you are a three trillion dollar economy and there are fifteen trillion dollar economy nearly, then they can uh, believe that they can ride roughshod over you. Right. So India, the the only thing India needs to do is to put our, we have to put our head down and work as hard as possible for the next 10, 20 years. Only then will you see a change in India's diplomatic approach. Right. So, yeah. So that's what I have to say about this. Samartha Gandhi says, Dr. S. Jaishankar recently visited Argentina and his visit has improved the relations to to a great extent. Any impact on India-UK free trade pact and India-UK ties considering India's position on this issue? Right. So it's interesting that uh, the Indian visit, the the Indian external affairs minister's visit to Argentina is being linked to India-UK relations. Now, why is it so? Why is uh, Samarth uh, speaking about that? So let's explain why it is so. There's always more than meets the eye when it comes to geopolitics, especially Argentina. So let's go to the map and understand why this is something that has to do with Argentina and, and the UK. So Argentina is this nation here, right? The big nation at the, uh, at the southern extremity of the uh, South American continent. So this all has to do with the Falkland Islands, which are which the Argentines called Las Islas Malvinas, the Malvinas Islands. The British call them the Falkland Islands. Now, these islands are obviously off the coast of Argentina. So one would expect that they would belong to Argentina. But no. They belong to this nation up here, the United Kingdom. And the Argentines have always claimed this this, uh, archipelago. So in the 1980s, early 1980s, Argentina tried to acquire this uh, piece of maritime real estate by force. Margaret Thatcher, the then Prime Minister of the UK, sent an expeditionary force, a naval force, to fight the Argentines. There was a brief Falklands War and the British won. Right, and obviously the British were supported by various other larger geopolitical powers and so on, as you know. So the British control this archipelago, and this is a disputed territory. The Argentine government and the Argentine nation has always 
repeatedly said that it belongs to them. Now, this is a, this is something that will be resolved in due course of time. So this is a dispute, a territorial dispute between the UK, Argentina. India now has excellent relations with the Argentines. It's, it's a work in pro, pro, progress, obviously. But uh, Dr. Jashankar visited Argentina very recently. And things are looking good when it comes to India-Argentina relations, right? And the interesting matter is this. Let me put something else on the screen. So there was a joint statement between India and Argentina. Let me show you the joint statement. Let's put that on the screen. India reiterated its support to the resumption of negotiations to find a solution to the sovereignty issue relating to the question of the Malvinas Islands in accordance with the resolutions of the United Nations General Assembly and the Special Committee on Decolonization. So this is this should be a non-controversial statement, etc. The only thing that uh, raises a little bit of eyebrows is the nomenclature. So India has chosen to call these islands the Malvinas Islands not the Falklands Islands. So it is an implicit recognition of the validity of Argentina's claim on the islands by using the name that the Argentines use for the islands instead of using the name the British use for the islands. It's like if you, there is a dis different dispute between China and Japan about the Senkaku Islands, which the, Chinese, which the Chinese call the Diaoyu Islands. So if India were to refer to the islands as the Senkaku, as the Senkaku Islands, then it means that India is implicitly supporting the Japanese claim. But if India were to call the islands the Diaoyu Islands, it would mean that India is implicitly supporting the Chinese claim on the islands. That's just a hypothetical scenario I'm offering you to understand how these things work. So India, in this joint statement, referred to the islands as the Malvinas Islands, which is implicitly supporting the Argentine claims, you, you could construe it in that manner, that India is indirectly and implicitly giving a little bit of support to Argentina's claims on a claim on the island, uh, archipelago, right? And why not? The British have always had a history of supporting all kinds of anti-India activities. There's a lot of anti-India activities that go on, on British territory, on British soil, Lots of Pakistani supporters are, are are on British territory. Other kinds of supporters also, separatists, separatists who see, want to see India fragmented. All of that is being supported and, and fomented on British territory. The British have always supported Pakistan in their terroristic activities and other activities against India. They created Pakistan. They broke India into pieces. So why should India not pay them back a little bit, right? Right now, India is still a smaller, smallish nation when it comes to overall geopolitical power. Yeah. But yes, India is a growing nation and this is going to germinate into a bigger bigger tree in the future. And they deserve it. Right? So yeah, there is an implicit support to the Argentinian claim on the Malvinas Islands and not the British claim on that, uh, on that island archipelago. Now, will this impact India, UK, whatever ties, etc.? Who cares? The UK is more or less a non-entity now. The only relevance the UK has, uh, it's still one of the major economies, yeah? It, India has recently surpassed uh, the UK overall GDP, recently. So uh, it, the UK is still a major uh, financial hub. The only relevance the UK has globally, let me assure you, the only relevance the United Kingdom has globally is as the global center of money laundering. London is the epicenter of global money laundering. 
all these various shell companies that you can create in the UK. If you have sufficient money, you can do anything you want. Yeah. And all the fugitives of the world like to have a house in London or somewhere in the UK. So the only real relevance that the erstwhile British Empire has is as a puppet of the US and the global money laundering hub. All the various dodgy arms dealers of the of the Middle East, all the various Saudi sheikhs and princes, all the various dictators and despots of the world in, in various puppet dictators in Africa, in other places, they all have investments in the UK. They all have bungalows or, or flats, penthouse flats in London. So that's the only relevance the UK has. Now, whether it affects the India-UK trade pact and all that doesn't really matter. India is going to anyway surpass all these irrelevant nations. And it is in their interest to have good, good relations with India because it will help them financially. India is a growing power. India is a growing economy. No one's going to stop India from, from achieving what it wants to achieve. The next 20 years, India will most likely surpass the $10 trillion mark unless there is something that is a, like a global catastrophe, which I don't see uh, hopefully happening. So it is in the UK's interest to get in line and have good relations with India. If they don't want it, they can go to hell and take a hike. That's all that matters. Yeah. So yeah, that's what I can say about this matter. Ananda Biswas says, recently, uh, so-called Putin's brain, Alexander Dugin, there was an assassination attempt on him. Unfortunately, his daughter fell prey to that. What's your take on this incident? And who do you think must be behind this attack? Ukraine, US, etc. In the future, can such incidents escalate to major steps taken by Russia? Right. So who is Alexander Dugin? He is a historian, philosopher, writer, uh, that sort of person. He's a scholar. He's an intellectual. He has authored books on various topics, including on geopolitics. One of the only books on geopolitics that makes sense, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah. so he is an intellectual. He's not a politician. He's not a powerful person. You may have a great following. It doesn't mean you are powerful. Yeah. So he is an influential person. He's a very uh, significant scholar, writer, historian, geopolitical analyst, and so on. But he's not a powerful politician or, or any such thing. Uh, some people allege that he is the the brain behind Putin. Not so. I, I I don't agree with that. Putin is his own man. He doesn't need the blessings or or the inputs from somebody to to do what he is doing, right? So I disagree that uh, 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 Alexander Dugin Dugin is Putin's brain brain and the and and the the brain behind uh, Russia's geopolitical geostrategic. Uh, initiatives and all that, right? Now, the thing is this. Yes, there was an assassination attempt on him. Uh, he was supposed to get into a, a car. There was a bomb in that car. Unfortunately, what happened is that he, at the last minute, went to another car and his daughter went into the car that had a bomb. And the car blew up and his daughter, unfortunately, died. His daughter was a reasonably young person, late 20s, early 30s, Daria Dugina. Yeah, uh, she, I think she was a journalist or something. So, yes, the bomb was intend, intended for Alexander Dugin. It ended up killing his daughter. You see, geopolitics is not child's play. It's deadly serious. People, this is what happens. Yeah. It is not child's play. It is It is a very grown-up matter. It's a matter of life and death. People die. And this is what happened. Right? So this is clearly an act of terrorism. You, When somebody, whoever did this, well, they targeted unarmed civilians, non-combatants, right? When you are targeting people who are not fighters, people who are not soldiers, people who are not part of the military, when you're targeting civilians, that is terrorism. So whoever has done this has 
indulged in a blatant act of terrorism. Now, the Western media will justify it. They will say that he was evil and his daughter was part of the regime and blah, blah, blah. So it's perfectly justifiable to kill them. The Western media is known to portray outright terrorists as, as austere religious scholars and, and so on and so forth. They will justify anything, any kind of bloodshed, any kind of barbarism to, uh, you know, in, in service of the, of the empire. That's what they will do. That's what the Western media is known to do. They will whitewash the worst of crimes as long as those crimes are in the service of their cause. So uh, the truth is what happened is an act of terrorism. Yeah. So what's my take on this incident? Who is behind this? Well, I don't have any actual information. One can surmise that maybe it's the Ukrainians who are behind this. Now we know who is... Who is the perpetrator of Ukraine? It's the US, right? But the Americans will never get their own hands dirty in this. They will never get involved in such acts of terrorism directly. They will, if they do it, we know that they have done this, done things like this in the past. Yeah. Look at the history of the past 50, 60 years. They, the Americans have been all behind all kinds of regime change operations and coups, coup d'etats, and various dictators, dictators. Uh, see their track record in, in, in South America, it's it's terrible. So it would not be surprising if overall, maybe there is some US hand in that, but they will definitely not be involved directly in this. They will be involved via proxy, if at all. Now, the proxy is obviously, I would expect somebody in Ukraine, or maybe the Ukrainian government, or some portion of the US, Ukrainian military, or something like that. Right? So the blame or, or the suspicion will obviously go towards Ukraine. Now, uh, can such incidents in the future escalate to something major? The, the intention would be that. See, when you target somebody who is a civilian, but who is considered, to, who is very well respected and maybe admired and, and maybe loved in his nation, and when it ends up killing his daughter, well, the intention is to put the leadership of Russia in a very tight position. That they have to respond to this. Right? So the intention, whether whether it was Alexander Dugino who was killed or whether his daughter was killed, the intention was to provoke Vladimir Putin and put him in a difficult position that he has to respond in order to placate the people who feel that uh, these people killed our, our, our scholar and you did nothing about it. And therefore, by doing that, by putting Mr. Putin in such a difficult position, you may induce him to make some kind of mistake and some miscalculation. So the Ukraine war is proceeding in, in a slow war format right? Old-fashioned 20th century warfare. No, uh, it's it's not blitzkrieg warfare. It's a very slow and steady war that's going on, right? So maybe that's not what the West wants. That's what, not what the Ukrainians and the Americans want. Maybe they want Mr. Putin to make some, some, some harsh and, and silly and stupid decision that will end up costing him some, uh, costing him. So overall, I would expect that the intention behind this terrorist act was to put pressure on Mr. Putin and induce him into making some kind of mistake that he would otherwise not have made. And thus far, we are seeing that it's been a few days since this incident happened. There has been no actual response from the Russians. Right? So sometimes if you want, if you want to win a war, you have to sometimes swallow some provocations and not respond to provocations designed to induce you into making a mistake. So we have seen no response essentially from the Russians. Maybe they will eventually respond at a time and place of their choosing. right? But there has been no knee-jerk response 
from the Russian government, from Vladimir Putin, for, from any any such quarters. So if they, the intention was to provoke the Russian government into making some uh, some miscalculation or some mistake, that has not worked. Right. So there we are. Piyush says, what are your views on India purchasing US drones worth $3 billion? Is it a bit expensive? If so, what, what should have been done of those $3 billion instead of purchasing drones? We do need drones. So these drones that are being referred to here are those Reaper drones, I believe, MQ-9 Reaper or something. I think that's what it's called. Now, uh, these drones are high-altitude, high-endurance drones, and these are hunter-killer drones. So they are not only used for surveillance, they carry a massive, a significant, not very massive payload, but a significant payload. Um, they can carry bombs, missiles, various things. They can be used for uh, surveillance in the maritime domain over sea. Yeah, they can be used to take out uh, various targets at sea. They can be used in mountainous terrain. They can be used uh, high above the India let's say India-China border, look deep into Chinese-occupied Chinese territory and maybe if required, you know, take some action, that sort of thing. The Americans have in the past used these drones for anti-terrorism operations in Pakistan and Afghanistan. Yeah. And the British operate some, some of these drones. I think even the French may have some of them and so on and so forth. So this is a very well-proven system. It's obviously very expensive. Yes, I uh, 30 drones for $3 billion, 100 million dollars per piece that's a tad expensive one would say but india does need these drones i would say that maybe this purchase is a stopgap purchase we need a few drones right now let's acquire these drones use them for now use them for the next 10 years or so in the meanwhile develop our own drone technology i don't think it's very difficult to develop your own our own indigenous drone technology we already have some rustam or some drone you know medium altitude uh, kind of a drone yeah so we are doing that we have acquired israeli heron drones uh, i think india needs to invest significant amounts of uh, resources into developing our own versions of these high altitude medium altitude and long endurance drones right what's a long endurance drone typically a drone that can loiter and stay in the air for 10 hours plus more than 10 hours with a significantly good payload and there are two two varieties, medium altitude and high altitude. So medium altitude would be less than 10 kilometers, I would say, maybe five or so kilometers up in the air. And high, high altitude is 10 plus 10 to 15 kilometers up in the air, that sort of thing. So the MQ-9 Reaper drone is a high, high altitude, long endurance drone. So I would imagine that India does need these drones. They're expensive. Yes, or anything you purchase from the Americans is going to be expensive. It's going to cost you money. Yeah. So I think it's a stopgap arrangement. The Turks have developed their own uh, drones. Uh, uh, I forget the name. It's a Turkish name. Good, good drones. Yeah. Uh, even the Iranians are developing drones. The Chinese have their own drones. So India should get into this thing, and India should also develop its own drone technology for a family of various kinds of drones: medium altitude, high altitude, and long endurance. That sort of thing. Hunter killer drones, surveillance drones, whatever. We need to do that. Get your act together, HAL, DRDO, whoever is involved in this, needs to happen. So yes, uh, it is something that most likely India needs right now. Uh, until we have our own indigenously designed and developed drones, we would need to acquire a few drones as a stopgap measure, as a temporary measure, and to keep Uncle Sam happy that, you know, we are, acquire, we are buying your weapons. 
so there's also a geopolitical and diplomatic uh, most likely angle to this to tell the americans that you know we are not buying everything from the russians we are also buying your weapons and we are spending some money on that so it 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 uh, serves multiple purposes so yeah i think it's a necessary evil get some drones from from the americans they are good drones i'm sure they are well proven they they do work they are effective so get these drones i i don't think it's finalized yet but it's in the final stages of approval or whatever it's called this entire deal so maybe by the end of this year the next 4 5 months we will uh, the ink it will be the the signatures will be done and uh, soon enough india would be able to acquire those 30 pieces of aerial hardware the long term game is to develop our own drone technology and become self sufficient in all these military uh, hardware and software matters Udit says, "Is the Western media's obsession about Finnish Prime Minister Sanna Marin's party video a distraction from what's happening in Ukraine and Taiwan?" Oh yes, this poor lady. So what happened? So the Swede, uh, the Finnish Prime Minister, her name is Sanna Marin. She's a she's a reasonably young person. I think she's in her mid thirties, thirty five, thirty six years old. And uh, recently, it uh, this all came out in social in the social media that she was. filmed partying with various other people and uh, it looks bad so let's let's take a look at the images sanna marin party <laughs> let's put that on the screen i i feel i feel sorry for her i mean is there a is there any rule that if you're a prime minister you cannot have a party once in a while so yeah this is what's emerged i i don't think there's nothing wrong in having a party once in a while with your friends or whatever yeah it looks a little it makes you look a little bit immature and uh, non leader like i mean the americans in the 2020 elections one of the main things the democrats one of the main uh, criticisms the democrats had about president trump was that he was unpresidential he was not leader like he did not have the 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 gravitas that a president should have he was a little bit funny and you know he did not behave like a president so the same allegation can be made uh, about this lady that the video that was leaked out it makes her appear unprime ministerial it makes her look like a regular person not somebody who is a prime minister and the leader of a nation so um, so that's what it is the the so how do we uh, how do we judge the performance of a leader is it is it important if they have a party once in a while in their personal life after hours is there anything wrong with that i don't understand why there is something wrong with that i'm sure she works every single day i'm sure she has not missed a single day of work ever since she became prime minister and everybody has their own way of winding down maybe she likes to party with some friends i don't see anything wrong with that yeah it makes her look silly so this is clearly a political ploy by somebody who video who videotaped this and then leaked this uh, the the film to the media and social media and all that yeah it's clearly uh, what's called a hatchet job somebody has, has stabbed her in the back it's a, it's a political ploy obviously so uh, so is she to blame for what happened i think she should have been a little more discreet it's okay to party but don't make sure that it doesn't get leaked out right everybody needs to wind down no matter how hard you work no matter how serious you are as a leader of your nation once in a while you need to indulge in some sort of 
behavior that distracts you for some time from the pressures of your work some people like to sleep some people like to read some people like to meditate some people like to party this lady likes to party i see nothing wrong with that so clearly somebody has uh, <laughs> done a hatchet job on her i feel sorry for her i don't know how what her politics is or whether she's good or bad as a leader i have absolutely no idea finland is not a very significant nation as far as i'm concerned so i have not ever really followed finnish politics i know their overall a uh, position in the geopolitical chessboard you know uh, finland has always been the the frontier nation against the russians they had a war with the russians in the 1930s and 40s some, somewhere around there yeah and right now they're trying to apply to become a member of nato and they've always been wary of the russians they have a very strong uh, civilian recruitment program in which civilians have dual roles like they serve in the military everybody has those who are part of that have weapons and they are available at very short notice to join the armed forces and all that so uh, that's the situation about finland i i kind of feel sorry for her this lady but she should have i in my opinion she should have been a little more careful about who she allows to film her So yeah, that's what happens. Um, I'm sure it's a lesson she'll never forget. I, will it affect her standing as prime minister? Maybe, maybe not. Yeah, that's how it goes. So yeah, uh, is it a distraction from what's happening in Ukraine and Taiwan? Maybe, maybe that's also one of the purposes for having this controversy erupt. People like controversies. People like it when some leader is caught doing something that is not very leader-like. You know, it's it's uh, it's it's great material for the gossip mills and. Uh, the media loves it the media loves this sort of thing so yeah it's a it's a good distraction if if that was the purpose to distract the people from what's happening in ukraine and taiwan taiwan obviously the chinese are tightening the screws they are tightening the screws on taiwan they are are now no longer recognizing the taiwanese airspace and their maritime borders and all that they are they are sending drones over over taiwan over the island of taiwan you know the chinese and so on so taiwan's sovereignty is under a big cloud a big dark cloud Uh, the chinese are slowly tightening the screws they are putting the taiwanese people under the siege kind of mentality illusion right um that's what's happening that's not very good for taiwan and taiwan is obviously um, well it's it's uh, one of the what what you would call the us vassal states uh, when it comes to ukraine things are not going well in ukraine the western media and all the various disposable minions on social media you know they will portray the taiwan uh, the sorry the ukraine war as a lost cause for russia but hey look at the maps look at the situation on the ground inch by inch meter by meter the russians are advancing they are consolidating their positions and they're going to get what they want and there's nothing the americans can do about it in the long run ukraine unfortunately whether we like it or not may have had its borders redrawn permanently so things are not going well in ukraine things are not going very well in taiwan still the taiwan is still uh, secure for now of course that's coming into the cloud so things are not very, going very well for american interests in ukraine in taiwan so yeah maybe people do need a distraction from time to time uh, there could be more distractions coming in in the future who knows new things coming up in the air masks again who knows who knows they'll come up with anything so yeah that's where we are right now Tomislav Nagy says I am a European I have never in my whole life treated any human being badly because of ethnicity race or language to say that every european is racist is not acceptable I agree it's not acceptable to say that every european is racist are you saying that I have said that I don't think I have ever said that every european is racist if 
it sounded like I may have meant it that way, then I will readily apologize. I do not believe that every European is racist. There are lots of good people in Europe. I know that for a fact. Not every European is racist. But let's look at it from a different perspective. Every single European nation or kingdom or empire that has participated in colonization has used racism to justify its policies and its, its actions. That is indeed a truth. Indeed the truth. It's always boiled down to civilizing the backward natives. They are savages. They need to be civilized. So that's always been the pretext to justify the actual actions that they have perpetrated, which is genocide and colonization and plunder and loot and destruction of entire nations and civilizations and cultures. So that has indeed been the truth. Now, let's say Belgium did horrific atrocities in Africa and it was all racism. They used racist, racist uh, um, uh, arguments to justify what they did. It doesn't mean that every single person who lived in Belgium at the time was racist. There would have been lots of good people in Belgium who had no, not an ounce of racism in them. Yes. So it is completely unacceptable to say that every European is racist. Completely unacceptable. I completely agree with you. But overall, the history of Europe, especially in the past 500 years, the, the age of colonialism has been an age of unbridled racism. So... You may not be a racist. I, I'm not sure what nation you're from. Nagi means Hungary, I'm sure. Hungary. Uh, I don't think Hungary has, as far as I can recall, indulged in colonial activities. And the, the people of Hungary are very nice people, as far as I know, in whatever experience, whatever little experience I've had. So I totally agree with you to say that every European is racist is completely unacceptable. That itself is racism, to say that all Europeans are racist. So yeah, the world is complicated. It's complex. History, I mean, if you look at the overall history of Europe, overall, it's it's not a very bad, a very good history in the past 500 years. Even if you look at the history of the past 1000 plus years, I mean, the destruction of European culture, the original native Indo-European culture is a tale of horrific atrocities and sorrow, sorrows, the Northern Crusades and all. So Europe has a very, very dark history, unfortunately. If you look at the past 500, past 1000 or 1500 years, and even if you look at the various other things that happened in Europe, the um, the expansion of the Anglo-Saxons into the UK, what's now the UK, the British Islands, that itself was bloody, brutal. There was a lot of racism there. The Irish were looked upon as, as second-class citizens. The, the Celtic peoples, they endured an enormous amount of racism from the Anglo-Saxons. I am sure people don't know this at all. The Irish were treated like second-class subhuman citizens by the by the English speakers, the Irish, and all the other Celtic peoples of the British Islands, whether it is the Welsh, whether it is the Scots or the Irish. Yeah. So there's been a lot of this. The Roman history itself is nothing to. I mean, its portrait is glorious by European historians, but hey, 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 they create a wasteland and they call it peace. That's what the Romans used to do. It's not my quote. Look it up. So overall, the history of the human species is a history of warfare. It's a history of violence. We are inherently violent. Yeah. 
But I totally agree with you, Tomislav Nagy, that to say that every European is racist is absolutely unacceptable. There are lots of good people in Europe, even today, even in the past, even during the time when Europe was destroying the, the rest of the civilized world. Even then, you would have had good people in Europe. But overall, yeah, we know what the history is. Okay, Laksha says, in your experience, are there any countries in Europe that are culturally similar to Bharat, India? And is it ever possible for Indians to be friends with Europeans in spite of racism and Hindophobia? Look, <laughs> it is of course possible for Indians to be friends with Europeans. There are lots of good people in every nation in the world, in every culture in the world. No matter which part of the geography of the planet you go to, you will find lots of good people there. Right. So, yeah, there is racism in Europe, but not all Europeans are racist. There is Hindophobia in the entire Western world that originates in certain things. But not everyone is a Hindu-phobe, right? It is certainly possible for Indians to be friends with Europeans. Not all Europeans, but many Europeans, I'm sure. Now, is there any nation in Europe that is culturally similar to Bharat? In the past, the whole of Europe had its own native culture and civilization, the old Indo-European culture. So the old Indo-European culture was the same as the old Indian culture, which to some extent still exists in India. Right, Hinduism, Indo-European culture was nothing but that in its in its all different kinds of local manifestations. The Roman gods are the same as the Indian gods. The Greek gods are the ancestors of the Roman gods. The Romans adopted the Greek gods. The Greek gods are the same as the Indian gods. The Persian gods are the same as the Indian gods. The Indian gods are the oldest of the gods. Right, the same pantheon you will see it in the Nordic pantheon. Thor is Indra. Thor is the thunder god and the hammer god. That's what Indra is. Thor defeats this great sea serpent Yormogandr. What did Indra do? He defeated the great serpent Vritra, who swallowed the oceans of the world, and so on and so forth. So the same culture existed all across Europe. It was destroyed by the Abrahamic culture. It was destroyed, uprooted through horrific barbaric means. This is the truth. Look at the history of Europe. Study it. Today's historians won't highlight those matters. But pick up history textbooks. Pick up any good history textbook that deals with the history of Europe in the past 2000 years. They will focus on that briefly. But it's there. We know what happened. The entire indigenous culture of Europe was destroyed. So below the surface in Europe, we still have elements of the old culture. Let me give you a couple of examples. Yeah. So the religion is now the Abrahamic religion as we know. Yes. But there is still elements of uh, European culture, old, old European culture that's still left behind. Here's an example from Lithuania. Do we know where Lithuania is? Look it up on the map. I will show you an example of Lithuanian culture. So traditional Lithuanian houses are adorned with the motif of two horse heads, the Ashwins, the Baltic counterparts of the Rig Vedic Ashwins, the divine horse twins. Old Lithuanian Ashwa and Sanskrit Ashwa mean the same thing, horse. Take a look at this traditional Lithuanian house if it will ever load. Here it is. As you can see, there's, a, there's this motif of twin horses on top of it. Here is a better image of that. So this is one example of old European culture, which is very similar to Indian culture, which, which essentially originates in Indian culture. Here's something else. Let's take a look at the linguistics. Words in English, Sanskrit and Lithuanian. You is tvam in Sanskrit, which is tu 
in Lithuanian. Who is kas in Sanskrit, which is kas in Lithuanian. When in English is kada in Sanskrit. How do I say in Sanskrit, when will I be happy? You say kada sukhi bhavamyam. Kada. So kada is kada in Lithuanian. Sheep, avis, avis. Horse, ashwa, ashwa. Go, iti, iti. God, devas, devas. Agni is ugnis. Danta is dantis. Swa, swa. Shwanaha, shwana. Dumas is smoke. Dumas in Lithuanian. Mirtis is mirtis. Pada is soul, is padas. Viras, viras, and so on and so forth. So if you look at the Lithuanian language, it sounds just like Sanskrit. The pronunciations will be different, different today. Nobody in Lithuania will rem remember the origin of their language, but here we are. You see it right in front of you. So there is so much even today that is in that the European culture has in common with India, especially when you when you uh, go slightly below the surface. And at the surface, you will see the Abrahamic culture. And that is still very strong in various parts of Europe. But if you go uh, a few la layers beneath the surface, you will see the true Indo-European culture, which still exists at subsurface levels and all that. Yep. So there's plenty in common between India and Europe to a certain extent. Okay, Pramod Singh says, please light your thoughts on the missing nuclear device on the Nanda Devi Parvat. Does it still exist? <laughs> interesting, interesting. Where is this Nanda Devi Parvat? Let's take a look at the map. Let's uh, put the map on the screen. Let's find this mountain, Nanda Devi. So I think Nanda Devi is the second tallest mountain peak in India. The tallest one is Kanchanjunga. And Nanda Devi is somewhere in northern India, in the Himalayan region, in the near Rishikesh. Okay, let's just search for it. It's somewhere in this region. Nanda Devi. And here we go. Here it is. So this is the mountain peak, Nanda Devi. You can see it on the satellite image, which will not make a lot of sense over here, but there it is. This is the mountain peak, the second highest mountain peak in India, right? So what happened here? So as you can see, it is very close to Chinese-occupied Tibet. Yes. So what's the story behind this missing nuclear device? So what happened is this. So, okay, so this is something that happened in 1965. So let us put this into okay let me just put keep that on the on the screen the map so that you understand what's happening so what happened in 1965 to put things in context uh, the 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 magnificent prime minister of india the greatest prime minister ever mr nehru very sadly and regrettably died in 1964 mr nehru died in may 1964 and mr shastri became prime minister of india mr shastri as we know died in january 1966 so this happened this entire matter happened in 1965 when Mr. Shastri was the Prime Minister of India. So the Chinese had uh, tested a nuclear weapon for the first time in 1964 in Chinese-occupied uh, territory, Xinjiang, so-called Xinjiang, etc. So what the Americans, the Americans were obviously concerned about this. So they wanted to spy on Chinese uh, military activities, nuclear activities in Chinese-occupied Tibet, Xinjiang, that region. And uh, so they entered into some kind of agreement with the government of India that they would place 
and observing a monitoring station, some monitoring devices, etc. on top of the Nanda Devi mountain, at the summit of the mountain in India. And the Nanda Devi mountain is nearly 8 kilometers, almost 8 kilometers tall, slightly less than 8 kilometers. So from there, you could see deep into Chinese occupied territory, maybe 50 kilometers away, where this entire thing was happening, right? So what happened is that in 1965, a team of Indian and American mountaineers climbed up the Nanda Devi mountain. What were they carrying? They were carrying uh, surveillance equipment. So there was an antenna or two antennas and there were nuclear powered devices, plutonium powered radioisotope thermoelectric generators. Okay. So I think there were seven plutonium capsules and the, the thermoelectric generator and some surveillance equipment that would be powered by the, the radioactive radioisotope thermoelectric generator. So this attempt to scale the mountain was done by a team of 14 American mountaineers, I think, and a bunch of Indian mountaineers too, because the Indians also had to be involved. This is Indian territory. We need to see what they're doing. This was attempted sometime in 1965. The attempt failed. They tried to climb the mountain and while they were climbing the mountain, they were high up, I believe, someplace. And there was a blizzard, a massive storm. And they had no option but to go back down. Otherwise, they would have frozen to death. And the storm was so severe, they had to leave the equipment on the mountain. So they left the equipment, the radioisotope thermoelectric generators, the plutonium capsules, etc. They left it on a ledge or platform somewhere on the mountain. And they went down and they were able to make it down alive. They, they did not lose any lives, right? So this happened in 1965. The next year, in the spring of 1966, after the death, death of Mr. Shastri, the same American climbers returned to the mountain. They climbed it up again and they knew where they had kept the equipment. And what they found in the spring of 1966 is that the equipment was missing. So they surmised that there, were, there must have been an avalanche, you know, on the mountain, which swept away all the equipment. This happens. Uh, in the Himalayas, avalanches are common. In the, on the Nandadevi mountain also, avalanches are reasonably common. So they surmised that there was an avalanche while they were not there and all the equipment was swept down somewhere downhill because of this avalanche. Then there was another attempt in 1967, which is said to have been a partial success. I have no idea what that means. And then there was a third attempt again in 1967 on a different mountain. This time it was on the Nanda Kot mountain. So Nandadevi is here. Where is Nanda Kot? It's here. If you can see, there is a different mountain called Nandakot. It is a it is a slightly smaller mountain, not as high as Nandadevi. So the third attempt which they did on this smaller mountain was a success. They were able to put the equipment there, and it worked. And they were able to monitor whatever the Chinese were doing, right? So all of this happened in the 1960s. It was all secret. In 1978, the Indian Prime Minister Moraji Desai revealed everything. Uh, this is what the Americans did. He was very strongly anti-US, anti-whatever. Yeah. So that's what happened. That's how the story came in, out into the public domain. Because Mr. Moraji Desai revealed what had happened, what had transpired in the 1960s. Now, some people say that because of this... So, so the question is, first of all, what happened to the missing equipment? The equipment that was placed on a ledge or a platform or some flat surface on the mountain in 1965, when they came back the next year, it had disappeared. So the official story is that there was an avalanche which would have swept it down and maybe it's lying somewhere frozen in the frozen uh, 
in the ice in the snow of the mountain somewhere downhill and it's a, such a big mountain it's very hard to to find the equipment so one interpretation or one uh, scenario is that the equipment was lost in an avalanche it was swept down downhill and it's still lying somewhere there the second plausible scenario is that the indian government later on sent some sent some climbers quietly and retrieved the equipment for research analysis or whatever so th- that's the two possibilities either the indian government acquired the equipment secretly or the equipment was actually lost what if the equipment was lost and it's still lying somewhere there is it a problem well let's understand what plutonium is plutonium is the thing is the element that is in the radioisotope thermoelectric generator that was supposed to power the 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 devices the surveillance equipment so plutonium is a radioactive element plutonium 238 is what was used in the radioactive isotope it has a half life of 88 years which means in 88 years time half of the plutonium will have decayed so it is the heat source in the thermoelectric generators the actual more common plutonium is plutonium 239 which is the primary fissile isotope in nuclear weapons it has a half life of 24000 years that is going to last forever essentially and then there is plutonium plutonium 240 241 also so the the plutonium we are talking about that we are concerned about is the plutonium 238 that was present in those capsules and in the devices now in case it is still lying around on the mountain you know somewhere in the foothills of the mountain the thing is this this region is the catchment area from where the ganga gets its waters the, there are there are these big mountain peaks here these are the himalayas there are glaciers that over time slowly melt and then there are these major rivers here the alaknanda the bhagirathi that feed the river ganga this all happens in uh, not the rishikesh but devaprayag i think it's in devaprayag that the alaknanda and the bhagirathi meet together here it is so you have one river which is the alaknanda the other one is the bhagirathi they get together here and then they are called the ganga so it is in devaprayag that the ganga river actually takes shape and then it comes downwards into rishikesh and then down towards uh, the down towards mainland india and so on and so forth so even the alaknanda the bhagirathi and other rivers they all get their waters from the ice melt and all that in this overall region so if there is plutonium lying around that could be a very dangerous thing if the capsules break open for whatever reason plutonium is extraordinarily toxic extremely toxic it it first of all it can kill people through its radiation secondly it can kill people through heavy metal poisoning and very small amounts of plutonium are enough to kill people so if the plutonium is still lying around and if it if the capsules break open then they could leach into the groundwater yeah they could contaminate the rivers uh, the, the waters that flow into the alaknanda and the bhagirathi and other rivers that feed the ganga that could be a disaster for india because millions of people live along the banks of the ganga millions of people get their water from the ganga and so on it it flows all the way down into bangladesh as the padma river yeah so that could be a massive massive disaster so in case the plutonium is still there i think something needs to be done about it i believe the indian government every year periodically tests the waters or the snow or whatever in this region for radiation that's what i i hear 
I'm not sure. So we don't know if the plutonium is still lying around there or maybe the Indian government may have retrieved it at some point in time. These things probably will never be revealed to the public for the next few decades. But yeah, that is the story. That is as far as I know. So that's what happened in 1965, 1966, 1967. The Americans wanted to keep an eye on the Chinese and India was also definitely uh, agreeable to that. And so this entire episode happened. All right. So that's the story about the missing nuclear device on the Nanda Devi mountain in northern India. Milan says, was Nepal ever a part of Bharat or has it always been an independent kingdom since ancient times? For those who don't know where Nepal is, let's let's take a look at Nepal. Uh, so Nepal is over here, right? North India. Uh, in the foot, the Himalayas, essentially the Himalayan region, northern India, that is now the independent sovereign nation of Nepal. So what is the story? Well, the Nepalese say that they have always been independent since the, since the beginning. That's what they say. Okay. So what does the what do the facts of history tell us, right? So if you can see, Nepal is part of Jambudweep. It's part of the Indian subcontinent. It's very clear, right? It's, it's over here. Now, what's the story? So Nepal, at various points in time, has been part of the Kosala Mahajanapada, the Panchal Mahajanapada, the Malla Mahajanapada, the Kashi Mahajanapada, and the Vrijika Mahajanapada, which was a confederation, confederation of various uh, clans led by the Lechavi clan. So these are various Mahajanapadas that Nepal was at various points of time part of. Kosal was one of the most powerful and prosperous Mahajanapadas of all time, right? We know that. I hope you know that. Panchal, Malla, etc. were also there. So Nepal was, the territory of Nepal, the present day territory of Nepal was part of these various Mahajanapadas at various points in time. The Mahajanapada era begins right after the Vedic era. It most likely lasted thousands of years. And the Mahajanapada era lasted until about 500 or so BC. And then you had the various Magadha empires that came into place after that. So then you had various empires that were based out of Magadh. The capital of Magadh was typically Rajgir, Rajagriha or Patliputra, which is now called Patna. Right. So Nepal, the territory of Nepal was at various points in Indian history, part of various empires based out of Magadh. For instance, the Nanda Empire. The 5th century and the 4th century BC, the Nanda Empire was a massive empire, very strong, powerful empire, short-lived but very powerful. The Nanda Empire was in power in India when the Greek warlord Alexander tried to invade India, disastrous in, uh, attempt to invade India. Why did his soldiers rebel against him? Because they knew the military strength of the Nanda Empire. So, when the Nanda Empire was in power in India, Nepal, the territory of Nepal, was part of the territory of the Nanda Empire. Then you had the Mauryan Empire, an even larger empire, massive empire. Nepal was part of the territory of Chandragupta Maurya during the Mauryan Empire era. And of course, the even larger territory of Ashok, Ashok Maurya, Ashoka the Great, also encompassed, incorporated Nepal in it, right? So, Chandragupta and Ashok, Nepal was part of their empires. Then you had the Shunga Empire, Pushyamitra Shunga, 185 BC, right? Nepal was part of Pushyamitra Shunga's empire. Pushyamitra Shunga arrested the decline, the imperial decline of India at the hands of the later Mauryan kings. And he re-established political uh, unity, 
to a large extent instability in india so nepal was part of the empire of pushyamitra shunga very much so and then when it comes to the kushan empire are you even kidding me the kushan empire it it touched the the banks of the caspian sea and the aral sea it also incorporated parts of, of what is now called xinjiang the tarim basin uh, tarim river basin region and of course large parts of northern india and western india the capital of the kushan empire was it had two capitals uh, mathura and purushpur uh, or peshawar today patliputra was part of it and nepal was very much part of the kushan empire now some very intelligent people will say the kushans were not indians please take a hike kushan the kushans were more indian than most indians you think of the kushan empire did more to promote india's national interest civilizational interest and to spread indian culture worldwide than most indian empires you know of so the kushans were more indian than most other indian empires right then you had the gupta empire right when did the gupta empire come to power in the 4th century ad until about the middle of the 5th century ad the gupta empire they had some magnificent brilliant rulers chandragupta the first chandragupta the second kumaragupta skandagupta samudragupta so the nepal region was very much part of the gupta empire all right then you had the karkota empire based out of shrinagar kashmir another massively expansionist and uh, but short lived empire parts of nepal were part of the karkota empire as well maybe whole of it then you had the pala empire based out of the east of india well parts of nepal were part of the pala empire as well the pala empire was a reasonably long lived empire around the mid middle of the 8th century ad until the middle of the 12th century ad so nepal was part of the pala empire as well so i hope i mean you can look all this up yourself don't ask me for sources do some homework those of you who are going to say show me the evidence look it up i'm not going to spoon feed you all right so you will be able to find all the corroboration that you want of whatever i have said in various history textbooks if you will only take the trouble to open a, open a textbook for yourself and don't please don't rely on google searches please don't do that do some actual work so nepal was always part of various indian kingdoms and empires and it has always been part of india the nepalese people are no different from the indian people same ethnicity same culture same ancestry same everything same language same culture same religion and so on and so forth it's only in the 18th century that nepal emerged for the first time as an independent entity under uh, prithvi narayan shah who conquered the nevar valley and he forged this little this little kingdom there and it is an independent nation because of an accident of history the british deemed it uh, worthwhile to uh, allow nepal to remain nominally independent nominally outside the british raj as a buffer state because there was a significant amount of chinese interference in tibet at the time so they wanted a buffer and that's why nepal remained nominally independent but not truly independent nepal has always been part of the indian economy nepal was always integrated with the economy of the larger indian subcontinent part of jambudweep right uh, so that's what it was uh, and you may think that nepal was independent as an is a kingdom but let me remind those of you uh, who don't who don't realize this that the incident in jallianwala bag the massacre just re- revisit that chapter of history and find out who was the who were the soldiers who were firing bullets at unarmed civilians just find out at least 50% of the soldiers who fired bullets at unarmed civilians men women children were gorkhas now i am not blaming the nepalese people for what happened but i'm just pointing out that nepal if you think it was independent think again 
Yeah, there is something called independence in name, and then there is something called independence in fact. So these two things, please understand, they are not the same. So anyway, that is about the Nepal. Nepal has always been part of India's civilization and culture, and in the future it will still remain that. Right. Okay, Bobby says, it is said that the Epic of Gilgamesh is one of the oldest surviving texts, which is dated to about 1800 BC. The Chins have a book from Confucius uh, dated back to the 2nd century BC. The Rigveda is older to my understanding. The surviving text was written on perishable material. It was likely copied. It's dated to about 1500 BC or so. So how can we tell the actual age by the language, by the material used, or by a special method of dating? So there are multiple ways of seeing, of, of trying to surmise what is the date of a certain text or, or, or a certain piece of literature. First of all, you look for the oldest hard evidence, written evidence. So I think in the case of the Epic of Gilgamesh, it would be written on clay tablets in cuneiform script. So clay is, is, is a hardy material, especially baked clay. It can survive if you keep it in the right, in the right conditions for thousands of years. Yeah. Uh, there, there's so many old clay tablets that you find the 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 treaty between the Mitanni and the uh, and the Hittites, which which is the oldest evidence of Indian gods, Rigvedic gods, Mitra, Varuna, Indra, and so on. That is cuneiform script on clay tablets, right? So, uh, so one of the ways the the first evidence you look for is the hard evidence, hard archaeological evidence. So I'm not sure what is the oldest hard evidence of the Rigveda. Is the material, is the text dated back to 1500 BC? Maybe it is, I'm not sure. Maybe it is. Let's say it is. So in the old days, uh, texts were written on birch bark in northern India, which is now Gandhar, Kashmir. Right? So Gandhar is no longer part of India as of today. Kashmir is obviously part of India. So in North India, where you had uh, birch birch trees and all that, uh, they would write texts on birch bark. They would write texts on various other perishable material. And uh, and we had lots of texts in universities and libraries, which were all destroyed. So that's why we've kind of, kind of lost the actual hard evidence of how old all of this is. So maybe, I, I'm not sure if, if this, this is the correct date, 1500 BC, but let's say it is. Now, it is believed... Uh, the mainstream historians, especially colonial historians, have been claiming for the past 150 years or so that the Vedic age dates back to about 1500 BC. That is the old, the, the chronology of the Aryan invasion myth. Now, how do we actually date the approximate time period of the Rig Veda? So it's not going to be possible to do it based on hard evidence because the, the oldest text that we have written inscription will be dated to whatever it is and maybe it's older than that. So one has to do a linguistic analysis to understand, first of all, what is the time period. So, for instance, the oldest hard evidence, written evidence of Sanskrit that we have is found in the Mitanni Hittite region, which is present-day Anatolia. Let's put that on the screen. Let's go to the map. So, this region here, so northern Syria, Anatolia, Turkey, this was the region where three and a half thousand years ago, you had two major kingdoms here. One was the Mitanni kingdom, the other was the Hittite kingdom. Now, the interesting thing, thing about both these kingdoms is that they spoke, one spoke the Hittite language, one spoke the Hurrian language, which were both local languages, Anatolian languages. But both of these kingdoms had an aristocratic royal, royal class that spoke Vedic Sanskrit. So the royalty spoke Sanskrit, which means that they were locals ruled by 
an a sanskrit speaking indian origin royalty that's what it was and we know this for a fact because we found the clay tablets of their uh, peace treaty in which the gods indra mitra varuna etc are invoked to witness the treaty and to bless the treaty to make sure that it succeeds and you also have a horse training manual by the by a horse master the the, the royal horse master of the mitanni whose name was kikuli so he wrote this horse training manual uh for training regular horses and making them into war horses a detailed manual in the hittite language in the cuneiform script but the problem he faced is that there were certain terms that for which there was no equivalent word in the hittite language technical terms scientific terms so for those technical and scientific terms he used sanskrit words because his he clearly was proficient in sanskrit so so these are the oldest written evidences of sanskrit that we have now this has been known for a century or so and uh, linguists have done the linguistic analysis of the kind of sanskrit that was that is found in all these ancient inscriptions and it is found that the sanskrit that is in evidence 3 and 1/2000 years ago in this region is late vedic sanskrit so it has plenty of words that are found in the atharva veda and the later vedas but those words are extremely rare or non existent in the rigveda so the sanskrit that we have the vocabulary is very clearly late vedic sanskrit now these empires flourished the hittite empire and the mitanni empire they flourished around 1500 bc and they would the the indians who migrated to this region would have done so at least 500 years before today so before that time so they would have reached this region around 2000 bc at the latest maybe even before that so that would tell us that around 2000 bc was the late vedic period or maybe before that and the rig vedic period must have been maybe a thousand years maybe 2000 years or something like that before that we, we don't know for sure so that is one way of dating the approximate chronology of the vedas that the rigveda would definitely come before 2000 bc the other evidence that we have is from the rigveda itself the various mentions of the river saraswati it is mentioned as an actual river not as a mythical mythical figurative river a river a literal actual physical geographical river that's how it's mentioned it's mentioned as a massive river as the mother of floods as a loudly roaring river and a glorious river and so on and so forth and now we know it existed i mean nobody can deny it anymore it's it's there are plenty of um, research papers even in nature the most prestigious uh, scientific general journal in which it is now called the saraswati it is not even called the ghagar hakra so it's now clear this river existed it was the most massive river in india at the time and it dried out around 1500 bc it was last in its prime around 6000 bc and it started declining slowly because of the de- the decline of the indian monsoon so it is clear that the rigveda would have been written closer to 6000 bc when the river was last in its prime and not closer to 1500 bc so these are approximate ways in which we can date the vedas especially the rigveda because the rigveda is essentially the starting point of the essentially the starting point of the vedic age and you could call it the starting point of indian civilization there are events that the rigveda mentions and the puranas mention that would have happened even before the rigveda most likely but let's if we consider the consider the rigveda to be the starting point of indian civilization then it would most likely have been written closer to 6000 bc than to 
1500 BC. That's what we can surmise. So we have these various indirect ways of gauging the approximate time period of the Vedas and the Rig Veda. But we, uh, it's still a work in progress, as you can see. We still don't have a very hard evidence of the exact time period for sure. So right now we have to make do with approximate chronological time periods. Okay, Rushikesh says, <laughs> there was very cheeky of you to mention Dimona. It gave Israel the Samson option. I want to ask you if the Vanunu episode was deliberate planned by the Mossad to make enemies of Israel nervous or was it plain stupidity on his part? Mm. So I had mentioned something about Israel a, f- a few episodes ago and I took a detour on the map at Dimona. So let's do it again in case you're not aware of what this entire matter is. Uh, let's go to the map. So what is Dimona? Where is Israel? Let's let's locate Israel. We know where is India is. Let's go westwards, westwards, westwards. West of India, you have a temporary nation called Pakistan, then Iran, then Iraq, then Syria. And west of Syria and Jordan, you have the small Eastern Mediterranean nation of Israel. So what is Dimona? Let's go to the actual satellite imagery. Where is Dimona? Where is Dimona? Okay, maybe it's not loading very quickly. So Dimona is near Beersheva. Here it is, Dimona, in the desert. So let's take a closer look at Dimona, shall we? So this is the town of Dimona. Now there is something interesting nearby. Where is the nearby thing? Let's see. Maybe it's here. So what is this place? There are certain very characteristic things that you see here. In one of these places, uh, if you do some digging, you will find the telltale signs. Okay, this is not the place. This is a fertilizer plant, is it? All right, here we are. The Negev Nuclear Research Center. It does research, nuclear research. And as you can see here, it is kind of obfuscated and not very clear, maybe on purpose. Maybe Google is cooperating with the Israeli government. Uh, But whatever, you can see that there are nuclear reactors, at least one nuclear reactor here. So this is the... And this is what gave Israel the Samson option, which means the nuclear option. And this most likely happened in the 1960s, 70s, yeah, that Israel developed nuclear weapons capabilities. Now, what is the Vanunu episode is the question. There was this uh, technician, Israeli technician, who worked in the Negev nuclear uh, research plant. His name was is Mordechai Vanunu. Uh, Let's take a look at what this gentleman looks like. Mordechai Vanunu. All right, let us put that on the screen. So this guy used to work there. He was not a scientist. He was a technician of some kind. And what this uh, guy did is that he leaked in uh, Israel's nuclear secrets. He uh, 
sold he took photographs surreptitiously which is clearly i would say a breach of security it is a lapse on the part of the israeli government and the whoever was in charge of security there and then he sold these uh, photographs and the story to i think news of the world in the uk if i am not mistaken i may be wrong about that but some publication in the uk and uh, and then he was captured by the israelis he was, he spent some years in jail uh, in prison i think he spent time globe trotting he was in australia for some time he was in various parts of europe and then he was lured by the israelis through the good old honey trap method and he was captured he was brought back to israel he spent a significant amount of time in prison he converted to christianity he started calling himself david crossman or something some crossman thing was there and so on and now i think he lives in israel he's not allowed to leave the country and yeah so that's the story of mordechai vanunu uh, the israelis consider him to be a traitor and uh, he may think of himself as something else and so on so that's how the world came to know about the fact that the israelis had nuclear capabilities and maybe they have a significantly non trivial nuclear arsenal yeah so the israelis have neither confirmed nor denied the fact that the the fact that they have nuclear weapons or not but you can see that there is a nuclear power plant in this place dimona right so what is the vanunu episode is it a deliberate plan by mossad to make enemies of israel nervous or was it plain stupidity on his part i'm not sure maybe we will never know so uh one possibility i mean uh yeah it's it's always good to let your enemies know that you have certain options yeah it's always good to do that so in that case maybe it was deliberate or maybe it was stupidity on his part or maybe on the part of the israeli government so there are the these are the various options possibilities scenarios i don't know for sure because hey these are top secret matters so maybe it was deliberate maybe it was israel's way of letting its enemies know that this is what we can do to you or maybe it was just plain stupidity but i think it has served israel well that its enemies know that it has nukes so maybe it was deliberate we don't know maybe they used somebody who was not very bright and used him in this manner manipulated him into revealing secrets which they wanted to be revealed that is a possibility but we don't know for sure we don't know but that in short is the story okay abiram says how did the booming economy of japan and its young population in the 1950s 60s 70s 80s turn into stagnation and older population right so we know that japan was once a major very rapidly growing economy booming economy i think in the 1920 1980s i believe if i am not mistaken japan had become the world's second largest economy most likely by the time the 1980s rolled into the picture uh, japan underwent this massive rejuvenation of the nation after the disaster of the second world war when it was nuked twice the whole nation was destroyed they rebounded rapidly they went to work they modernized very fast yes i think in the 1960s 70s the the economy was growing at 10% plus per year 12% plus per year very rapid growth yeah so we know that japan is controlled by the us the americans have more than 130 permanent military bases on japanese soil the constitution of japan has been written by the us in 1945 not a single word has been changed so the entire nation is essentially a vassal state a puppet state of the us 
various Japanese politicians have revealed that no major decision can be done by the Japanese government without the express approval of the US military and the US government and so on. So this nation is fully controlled by the US. It is not a free nation. It may have elections, it may have democracy, and the individuals may be free, but overall the nation is completely controlled by the US. Understand that. Now, so what happened? Japan was booming. The economy was booming and suddenly something went wrong. So what happened is this. In the late 1970s, early 1980s, the Japanese bank, the, the Bank of Japan, the government, had kept interest rates very low. What does that do? When interest rates are low, the people and the businesses can borrow money. It's, it's good for borrowing. Let's say you want to expand your business. Let's say you want to do more R&D, research and development work. You will need money for that. You need capital for that. If you can borrow money at low interest rates, it's good. Let's say I want to borrow money and the bank is giving me a 10% interest rate. And I want to borrow, let's say, 100 rupees for five years. So after five years, I'm going to have to give them 150 rupees back because it's 10% interest per year. This is a very rough hypothetical example. But what if I'm getting the same money at 2% interest rate? Then instead of 150, I have to give them 110 after five years. So if the interest rates are low, it it boosts the economy. It means there is more borrowing. There is more emphasis on research and development and the economy grows. So during this time, when the interest rate was lowered, the Japanese economy grew rapidly. All the various Japanese technological firms like Sony and whatnot, they, they did very well. There was a lot of emphasis on research and development. That's why the Japanese uh, nation became the most technologically advanced nation in the world. Right Now, in 1985, there was something called the Plaza Accords. This was between the US, France, Germany, UK, and Japan. Five nations. One is the US. The other four are France, UK, Germany, and Japan. France is a reasonably independent nation, but Germany, the UK, and Japan are are proper vassal states of the US. So these five nations decided to manipulate international exchange rates. It was all done at the behest of the Americans. So what the outcome was of this is that the US dollar depreciated in value and the Japanese yen, the Japanese currency, the yen, appreciated in value. This was manipulation of international currency exchange rates. So when your currency becomes more valuable, more expensive, your exports decrease, your imports increase. Because your population, which has money, suddenly the money has more value. So you can buy more. So imports increase, but your exports decrease. So that kind of flattens the economy. So because of the Plaza Accords, Japanese exports suddenly slowed down and imports started increasing. Then the the exchange rates were further decreased. Yeah. So because of that, the real estate market in Japan started booming. And real estate property became very expensive. And people started buying property. There was a big real estate bubble. And then for whatever reason, the Bank of Japan increased the interest rates. What this did was first of all, there was a stagnation of the economy. The people of Japan who had bought all this property, expensive property, suddenly found themselves saddled with property that is now lower in value 
and now they in the loans that they taken they they had to pay more interest on them now on the loans because of this the entire consumer behavior changed in, in japan and the japanese people start, stopped consuming the cons- they stopped spending money and the the consumption uh, went down so there was deflation there was stagnation of the economy and over time this went on and on and even today the japanese population the japanese economy has not recovered from there the japanese yen is now on very shaky ground so this is not the entire story i'm just giving you the very rough highlights it is the actions of the japanese government and the japanese the bank of japan that caused this entire thing to happen they first kept the interest rates very low yeah and then there were the plaza accords orchestrated by the americans which manipulated the global exchange rates it made the japanese currency more valuable it made it appreciate then there was the real estate bubble engineered, engineered by the japanese bank the bank of japan and then they suddenly increased the interest rates which totally destroyed the economy so they called the the 1990s the lost decade the decade in which there was no growth in japan there was stagnation almost no growth 1% or 2% growth less than 2% most likely yeah maybe 1.2% growth and uh, yeah so the economy shrunk consumer behavior changed completely the entire society became closed down pessimistic uh, people stopped having children you know everything became more expensive and you can see the results of that today japan has this rapidly aging population the birth rates are way way down yeah way below for replacement and the economy is not doing well it's still stagnating so it all originates in the actions of the japanese government in the bank of japan and all orchestrated by the americans in the 90, late 1970s mid 1980s late 1980s that's where it all happened and that's how the entire nation went from a vibrant booming economy into an economy that is beset with with deflation and stagnation that's where it is today that's what happened okay shazam says says please tell us something about damascus steel damascus steel is a misnomer it's a misnomer the actual steel was indian steel so i don't know what its actual name was it is the the method of cre- of of manufacturing this of smelting this steel is the crucible method it's called crucible steel at various points in time it has been called ceric steel or whatever um uh, let me show you what this particular kind of steel looks like right okay let's put that on the screen so this is a very specific method of of smelting steel in which you introduce impurities carbon and all that various things into the steel to give it a certain set of characteristics it's a very strong steel if you uh, do a microscopic study of the kind of steel that you have here you will find carbon nanotubes that are introduced into it and this process it is known to have existed in india at least since 500 bc 500 bc India is the world's first completely industrialized civilization and this is a good example of that so the oldest examples of this uh, steel manufacturing process the crucible steel manufacturing process were discovered in southern india tamil nadu and even sri lanka around 500 bc and this steel was exported to other parts of the world to the middle east maybe to mesopotamia maybe maybe to egypt um 
the Greek warlord Alexander is supposed to have been given a gift of a, a, a certain amount of the steel because it was the best steel in the world. The Romans used to import the steel from India because they could not manufacture this kind of steel. And it was merchants in Damascus who used to import the steel from India. And when the Europeans went there, they, they called it Damascus steel. It is not Damascus steel. The merchants in Damascus used to import the steel from India and then they would Man, they would shape it into swords and daggers and whatever else, right? So that's why it's called Damascus steel, but it's actually Indian origin steel. So it's got this incredibly beautiful geometric pattern thing, you know. So this is what Damascus steel looks like. And nowadays the, the manufacturing method is reasonably well known, right? So it is not something that originated in, in Syria. It's where the Europeans first found it. The Europeans have this habit of giving ridiculous names to things. So when they first came into the Eastern Asia region, they found that the Chinese, there were lots of Chinese merchant vessels in a certain part of the world. They called it the South China Sea. It's never been Chinese. It was always the Champa Sea, the Champa Samudra, but they called it the South China Sea. When the British took over parts of Eastern India, Bengal, they called that part of the Indian Ocean the Bay of Bengal. It's not the Bay of Bengal. It is the Kalinga Mahasagar. The British named the western region, the western part of the Indian Ocean, the Arabian Sea. It's not the Arabian Sea. It is the Sea of Saurashtra. And so on and so forth. They have this horrible tendency of giving inappropriate and incorrect names to various things. Whatever they see, they give, they give their own, well, names. So Damascus steel is not Damascus steel. It is Indian steel. Uh, as far as we know, the oldest evidence of this, the manufacturing process, is known to have existed in southern India, Tamil Nadu and Sri Lanka, at least 500, around 500 BC. Maybe it must have been much older than that. We still don't know when it actually originated. So that's how old this manufacturing process is was and it originates in india not in syria or damascus all right descended of rigvedic clans says who is utsi the ice man what was his connection with the north indian population what is transitive abrahami script okay 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 three questions <laughs> let's take one okay who was this guy utsi the ice man let's put him on the screen shall we Utsi, the Iceman. Okay, this is. I'm going to show you the image of a dead person. In case you don't like to see it, switch off. All right. So this is a person who died about 5,200 years ago. And he died in the European Alps, in the region between, between Italy and Austria, the, the Alps in that region, the mountains, high up in the mountains. And he died and he froze to death. I mean, he didn't freeze, freeze to death. He died and then his body froze. And it was discovered... It was rediscovered in 1991 by, I think, hitchhikers or mountaineers. And they thought they had come across a murder scene, which actually was a murder scene, but it was 5,200 years old. So let me show you what this gentleman looked like. Yes, it's a dead body. It's a mummified person. I will not enlarge the images in case it, it is distressing for some people, but this is what it looks like. This is a reconstruction of the gentleman's face, a reasonably handsome person. Yes, maybe he needs a shave. But yeah, that's what it is believed he looked like. This is a reconstruction of his appearance and his visage. Otsi the Iceman. Now, they make him look very European. It is known that he had 
brown eyes and uh, dark brown or black hair and his skin was not exactly white it was light brown he had a proper mediterranean appearance and genetically he is close to the people of the mediterranean region if you look at the mediterranean region uh southern italy greece lebanon etc the skin color the skin tones you find in these regions that's the kind of skin tone that he had so it's not proper what you would call the white race it's like light brown race yeah so that's what this gentleman looked like so what is this guy's story so they found the body in 1991 if i'm not mistaken frozen uh, what what yeah this is what it looked like that's what uh, he looked like when he was found um as you can see that's how they found him he was frozen stuck in the ice then the body was extracted by various uh, i don't know researchers archaeologists whoever it was it is now preserved some place i don't know where it where it is preserved it is preserved at minus 23 degrees or something and uh, they take good care to ensure that the body doesn't degrade right and then they were able to do ct scans and various other tests of this gentleman and to figure out how he died so they found out that uh, he had some nice weapons uh, he had a flint or stone knife and a copper axe a very good quality copper axe he wore clothes that were good for at least two three uh, layers of clothing good boots he had a, a fur cap that was made up of, of the fur of a bear i think yeah they were able to determine what kind of food he had eaten his last meal there was meat i believe of some kind and uh, and then they found that they, he had a wound on his hand which came from grasping a blade which somebody was trying to push at him so it was a self defense wound he tried to grasp a blade and it cut his 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 palm to some extent and the wound was healing which means that he survived that attack or that fight which he got into and they also determined his cause the cause of his death the cause of his death was an arrow in his back so yes it was a murder he was shot to death he also had i think uh, some kind of traumatic head injury maybe hemorrhaging of the brain or something which would indicate that maybe he hit his head when he fell down or maybe he he was hit on the head later on something like that so it was not a very uh, peaceful death it was a violent death he carried arrows a bunch of arrows a bundle of arrows and so on so that's what we know about him this entire thing his death happened about about 5200 or so years before today roughly and it's uh, one of the best preserved ancient uh, naturally mummified bodies that exists today and there's still plenty of research that's being done on his uh, body so genetically he is believed to be the, closely related to the people of the mediterranean region the south mediterranean or so that sort of region i am not sure what his connection is with the north indian population and so on so uh, not sure about that so that's what i can tell you okay mazar says is it true that the indian subcontinent was first called sindh later it became hind because the persians could not pronounce sa Let's go to the map to understand what really happened. Where is the map? Here's the map. One second. Let's me let me zoom out of Israel. Okay. Maps. Come on. Where's the map? Here it is. I'm not sure why it's showing me the night side. Okay, here where we are. Let's put the actual map on. Okay. 
So the question is, is it true that the Indian subcontinent was first called Sindh? No. The Indian continent subcontinent was called Jambudvipa or Aryavarta. That's what the Indians called it. Now, where does this term Sindh comes from, come, come from? It comes from the river Sindhu, which, the, which is now called Indus in the English language, the Sindhu River. So it's the river that flows through ancient Meenanagar, present-day Karachi, uh, if I am not mistaken, somewhere here. Eh? So the river, its it, its original name was Sindhu. Now you are right that the our, our Persian cousins or Persian cousins could had a different way of pronouncing the language. The old Persian language was nothing but a version, a slightly distorted upper branch version of Sanskrit. The pronunciations were different. So instead of Sa, they would say Ha. Right? Uh, so instead of Sindh, they would say Hind. And the Greeks and other foreigners who came to India, they came through Persia. And when they would have conversed with the Persian friends of ours, the Persians would have said, yes, yes, Hind, Hind, over there, Hind. Yeah, eastwards. So that's how all the foreigners started calling India Hind. That's how it happened. It happened because the Persians called this region the region of the Sindhu River, but they called it the Hindu region or the Hind region. And that's how the term India came into the picture which was a further corruption of Hind into India or whatever. So that is the story in brief, how India, India came to be known as Hind, because our Persian cousins could not pronounce, pronounce Sa. Even in Western India, there are certain places in Gujarat, Rajasthan, where even today, instead of Sa, they say Ha. So there is some, some, some of that in India as well. Okay, Anurag says, in the movie 300, it was shown that Xerxes had gargantuan elephants and rhinos in his army. My question is, is if the depiction was true, then where did he get, where did he manage to get those animals from as they're not found in Iran? So who was this uh, gentleman called Xerxes? First of all, the movie is a fictional depiction of something that actually happened. It is a fictional depiction of the Battle of Thermopylae which happened in Greece. So Xerxes was one of the great uh, Persian emperors of the Hakshamanish dynasty, the Achaemenid dynasty. His name was not Xerxes, his name was Kshayarsha. Kshayarsha, that's, that's his name. He was the son of Darius the Great. Xerxes lived in the fifth and in the, in the 5th century BC, he ruled Iran, Persia, in the 5th century BC. Let me put that on the screen so that you understand what, what the region is. So this is the region of Iran. He had a big empire and he expanded westwards. He conquered Anatolia and he fought the Greeks. Anatolia, which is present-day Turkey, was historically Greek territory. The Greeks lived there. The ancient city of Troy is found in Anatolia, in western Anatolia. So Anatolia, present-day Turkey, was Greek territory. Uh, Mr. Xerxes, Emperor Xerxes, Emperor Kshayarsh conquered Anatolia and he ventured into Greece and he fought this great battle, the great uh, the Battle of Thermopylae, which was a victory for the Persians, a defeat for the Greeks. He was able to capture Athens, the capital of Greece, and he ordered this city to be destroyed. And we have discovered archaeological evidence 
of the Persian destruction of Athens. And then, then the city was rebuilt, obviously. We know that. So the question is, in the movie, this, this guy, Emperor Kshayarksha, is depicted as having had gargantuan elephants and rhinos in his army. Where did he get them from? So first of all, the rhinoceros is not an elephant you can tame. That is a massively dangerous and incredibly powerful animal. You cannot tame it. And you certainly cannot use it for warfare. So that was what you what you call a creative liberty in the movie. The movie makers took some creative liberties and they portrayed this guy as having rhinoceroses in his army. He would not ever have had rhinos. It's possible that he may have had elephants. Now, obviously, we know that elephants don't live. Uh, elephants uh, are not found in Iran. So obviously, he would have acquired them from India. See, the Persians were descendants of Indians. Lots of close cultural, ethnic ties with India. India and Persia were neighboring civilizations. And I am sure India and Persia had excellent relations. The Persians, as far as we know, never ever tried to invade India during the entire time period of the Achaemenid dynasty, the Achaemenid dynasty. So it's possible that India and Turkey, uh, India and Persia had excellent trade relations, cultural relations, diplomatic relations, marriage relations, and whatnot. And therefore, the Persian emperor may have acquired elephants from India, from whoever was his counterpart as king or queen or whatever in India at the time. So it's possible that the Persians may have had war elephants. If they did have them, they would have acquired them from India. As far as rhinos are concerned, not possible. Rhinos are too violent, too dangerous and too unpredictable to be tamed and you cannot use them for warfare. As far as I know, to the best of my knowledge. All right. So that's the answer to this question. All right. Hmm. Next question. Pseudopodia says the Thai script is very much similar to the other South Indian scripts. However, it includes Sanskrit words. Can you explain this? Mm -mm -mm. Please understand the difference between a script and a language. A language can include Sanskrit words. A script is simply a writing system. You can write anything in any specific script. So for instance, there is the Latin script which emerged out of Italy. It was used to write Latin, the Latin language. But after the Romans conquered most of Europe, that script was imposed on all the local cultures. And today you write the English language in the Latin script. So the script is just a vehicle to carry any language. Yep. So the Thai script. Okay, let's see what the Thai script looks like, shall we? Let's take a look at that. Let me put that on the screen. Omniglot. Omniglot Thai. Put that on the screen. Let's see what the Thai script or alphabet looks like. Come on. Here we are. The Thai uh, language. This is what the script looks like. As you can see, it looks kind of similar to uh, various southern Indian scripts. Even the script of the Oriya language. Oriya language. Yes. This is what it looks like. All those vowels and consonants and all that. So as you can see, it's quite similar to uh, various southern Indian scripts. What about the Burmese language? Let's take a look at the Burmese language and the Burmese script. 
suspiciously uh, related to various southern Indian scripts. Let's take a look at the Khmer script of Cambodia. What does the Khmer script look like? Here we are. Ka, 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 cha, cha, da, tha. <laughs> Once again, as you can see, it's quite similar to Thai, Burmese, and various ancient or, or southern Indian scripts. Let's take a look at one more script from Laos, the Lao script, which is spoken in Laos, in Cambodia, and Vietnam. The language, and this is the script. Ka, ka, ga, all that, the same thing. Once again, very similar. Ka, 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 ki, ki, ku, ku, ke, 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 all that stuff, which we are very familiar with if we have ever learned any Indian language. All of these scripts come out, are descended from the ancient Pallava script, which was written in South India. It was used to write Sanskrit, various varieties of Prakrit, including Pali, and later it, it was exported to various parts of Southeastern India, uh, Southeast Asia. This is the Pallava script, right? So there you are, that's what it is. So, and the Pallava script itself is a descendant of Brahmi. So this tells you, this shows you the kind of influence, the enormous influence India has had on Southeast Asia, on Thailand, on Cambodia, on Laos, on Vietnam, on Indonesia, and all the way up to the Philippines. And it goes way beyond that. So, uh, yeah, so this is the Thai language and, and that's why it is the way it is. And the Thai script can even be used for writing Sanskrit, right? So it's because of the ancient Indian history. It was first the uh, the Kalinga Empire and Kingdom that spread Indian culture all the way across Southeast Asia. And then it was the Imperial Cholas mm -hmm. who, who went a step further and uh, spread more Indian culture and possibly the Pallava script in this region. Right, so that is the history uh, that explains all of this. Okay, let's take a couple more questions. Okay, this is a question I've never had before. Harsh says, "Please tell something about Gautami Putra Satakarni, one of the greatest rulers of India, I believe, and how Satvahanas pose challenges to the belief that India has always been a patriarchal society." Okay, the Satvahanas. I've never really had a question on Satvahanas. So, the Satvahana dynasty uh, was also known as the Andhra dynasty. They ruled in uh, between the 3rd century BC and the 1st or 2nd century BC yeah, in southern and central India. It, uh, At its greatest extent, it incorporated parts of Saurashtra, Gujarat, Western Gujarat, Madhya Pradesh, Maharashtra, Andhra Pradesh, Telangana, Karnataka, etc. Make big. If you look at the size of the greatest extent of the Satvahana Empire, it was roughly the size of Germany and Spain put together. Big, big, big. Its capital city was Pratishthan, modern-day Python in Maharashtra. And they were very good, great patrons of arts and culture and Hinduism and Buddhism and whatnot. Literature, they built supas and lots of things. And uh, what does Satvahan mean? The word Satvahan is the Prakrit form of the Sanskrit term Saptavahana. And what is Saptavahana? The chariot of the sun, which is driven by seven horses. So indirectly, they are implying that they belong to the Surya Vansh, the solar dynasty, right? 
so uh, the greatest king obviously was gautami putra satakarni uh, he was the son of queen gautami balashri he lived in the first or second century ad and he is said to have defeated lots of people the shakas or the skithians the yavanas the pahlavas and various other other people and his extraordinary conquests are and achievements are described in enormously great detail <laughs> very great detail in the nashik inscription of his mother now one of his greatest rivals was the great mahakshat was the was the western satraps empire the great mahakshatrapas of western india who ruled the region of gujarat rajasthan maharashtra parts of maharashtra uh, parts of sindh and so on and so forth so it is believed possibly that gautami putra satakarni may have defeated the great mahakshatrapa nahapana and it this belief comes from the fact from the known fact that many of nahapana's coins are superimposed with uh, gautami putra satakarni's inscriptions but that doesn't conclusively prove that this actually happened maybe it is it is possible or even likely that gautami putra satakarni may have lived uh, one or two generations after nahapana overall if you see nahapana was one of the one of the greatest of rulers of western india or possibly all of india possibly even greater than gautami putra satakarni but gautami putra satakarni himself was one of the great rulers of india he had two two sons vashishthi putra pulavami and vashishthi putra satakarni um, and then after after him the empire slowly declines his son married the daughter of the mahakshatrapa rudradaman the first and he still went entered into conflicts with rudradaman he was twice defeated by his father in law each time he lost territory but he was spared because of the family relationship and so on and uh, eventually the the uh, empire declined and disintegrated over time uh, the last ruler of the empire was yajna shri satakarni who lived most likely in the second century ad but overall the greatest ruler of the satvahanas was gautami putra satakarni who had significant major achievements and you know, who was a great patron of arts and culture and religion and literature who built supas and things who did public works so one of the great rulers for sure so that's an interesting chapter of indian history that is typically not really uh well known and it's something that i speak about in my course all right let's talk about something else okay long question jag roshan singh says i wonder how is a country able to recognize its adversary and counter attack if the nuclear tipped ballistic missile gets fired from the ocean from the sea using a submarine example let's say india fires a nuke into china from a nuclear submarine in the pacific ocean how is china going to figure out who did this because the submarine appears from nowhere and after the after firing the missile it disappears into nowhere excellent question excellent question so that is the point of having submarines especially nuclear submarines with long endurance they can stay stay like 6 months submerged without ever coming up for air so they can stay deep under the ocean for months at a time going around the oceans and then they can fire a missile from anywhere they want and then quietly disappear so how will the nation that receives the missile <laughs> know where it came from and who is responsible for the attack that is the question that is a very good question so it's like this there is a whole version of warfare happening right now right now this very moment 
that we are not aware of submarine warfare it is a cat and mouse game that's happening as we speak right now there are fleets of submarines in the pacific ocean in the atlantic ocean in the antarctic ocean in the northern ocean arctic ocean in the indian ocean in the bay of bengal in the sea of saurashtra in the persian gulf there are fleets of submarines playing a cat and mouse game right now american submarines russian submarines chinese submarines indian submarines maybe one or two pakistani submarines they are all shadowing each other they are all trying to figure out who is going where and there are other military assets involved in this ships also monitor the movements of submarines aircraft are also equipped with with technology that can detect magnetic anomalies deep under the ocean which is the signature of a submarine right and so on so it is the job it is the professional duty of every navy to know exactly where the various submarines of its enemies are at any given point in time and there are entire branches of the navy dedicated to doing this in a minute by minute basis right so you have satellites firstly you have naval satellites that keep a close eye on all the naval ports and assets of your enemy nation let's say india wants to know what the chinese are doing with the submarines we know more or less where the chinese submarine bases are so we keep an eye on these chinese submarine bases through our satellites which can do a day and night surveillance of course some of the submarine bases are underground and underwater and all that so it's it's difficult but that is the starting point then once you know that a certain submarine is out so you need to know where the submarine bases are you need to know exactly how many submarines your enemy has what are the classes what are the uh, ranges what are the what is the endurance that each submarine has you need to know this it's your job to know this if you don't know it you're not doing your job you're failing then you need to find ways of tracking the exact location of your enemy submarines on an, on a minute by minute basis so for that you have your own submarines that will shadow the enemy submarine you have your own uh, naval vessels ships merchant vessels disguised naval ships disguised merchant vessels and so many other things then you have various choke points like the malacca choke point the the strait of hormuz the strait of bab al mandeb the various uh, 10 degree channel other other channels in the andaman islands through which these submarines have to pass so you can keep an eye over there so it's a cat and mouse game that's happening every single moment as we speak there are fleets of submarines of various nations that are shadowing each other and keeping an eye on what the other is doing there are chinese submarines that are being shadowed by indian assets there are american submarines that are being shadowed by russian assets and it is their job to know exactly what is happening so that when one of them fires a missile they will know immediately and if they don't know they have failed utterly in their duty so that's how it is okay so that's how so it is not a foolproof thing sometimes you may make a mistake and you will not know where it comes from but if you are a major power or if you are aspiring to be a superpower it is your business to be on top of this game the submarine warfare game and you should know exactly what is happening at any given point in time vis-a-vis the submarine assets of your enemies and then you will know who did what that's the answer dungar singh chauhan says 
ebooks and pdfs have, have replaced paper books to a great extent what's your take on this is it something that needs to be to happen or is it just an increase in the already high screen time of people well technology is a double edged sword on the one hand it is making access to books easier you can now read books on your phone yeah and uh, yeah ebooks on your phone pdfs on your phone so if you have a phone you can read stuff anytime you want so it makes it easier to access books instead of going to a library and borrowing a book or purchasing a book which is expensive you can actually get a lot of the stuff online especially material that is now copyright free or whose copyright has expired or whatever right and other things as well so on one hand it's great on the other hand it's not good because when you have this screen time when you keep staring at screens there is this blue light blue light that goes into your eyes and this blue light has the tendency of keeping you awake so it it delays the onset of the melatonin uh, hormone which is this signal that you need to start sleeping so every human being every person has a circadian cycle a sleep wake cycle and it is something that is naturally wired in your brain and this excessive amount of blue light that you get from various screens phones laptops tablets whatever it messes up the circadian cycle and that's what causes various sleep disorders and what not so in the old days before sleeping people would spend half an hour one hour reading a book that's good it slowly puts your brain to sleep if it's a boring book or not yeah but if you do the same thing with the, with the screen it's going to prevent you from sleeping it's going to make you sleep less so yeah it's it's bad so i personally as you can see i prefer physical books i do use pdfs from time to time whenever required but i prefer to read books in the physical form especially before sleeping so um it's not something that needs to happen in 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 some ways it's not good because it's it's causing all these uh, sleep issues and all that but it's it's just a sign of the times we're in the 21st century and we are facing these issues i think physical books are still better from my own perspective but uh, well things change times uh, times change and people move on so that's where we are lage raho online says hello abhijit bhai our ancient vedic culture observed miraculous benefits of fast and brahmacharya you have also done it multiple many times what's your experience so my experience is with, is with is with fasting i don't know the other thing all right uh yeah fasting is good i have done multiple water fasts extended water fasts i've even documented that on on my other youtube channel yeah uh the first time i did an extended extended fast was a 21 day water fast no food only water for 21 days it was fine yeah there was weakness and all that yeah and there was there was this mental cravings for food but overall it was fine i lost obviously a lot of weight so before you start a fast like that you have to ensure that you put on some extra weight before you want to start a fast so that way your body will be able to burn out all the excess weight that you've uh, that you've put on and it will not cause any health issues so the first fast i did was a 21 day water fast the second fast i did was a 23 day water fast and uh, i think in december or something last year i did a third fast which was supposed to be 21 day fast but i stopped at 14 days so i have done that i think that the human body is very strong you can withstand any kind of thing and uh, i always ensure that i put on some weight before i do a, an extended fast so that way i'm i'm safe and there is no health issue and i always monitor my uh, 
vital signs blood pressure and uh, heart rate etc at the same time every day to make sure that everything is 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 going fine and so on my experience has been great uh, you lose weight you lose strength you lose muscle mass which is not nice but it's okay it's one of the things that happens it's inevitable when you go without food for an extended period of time it gives you incredible mental clarity and focus and overall it's a very positive experience yes it's kind of it's slow motion torture because your mind craves food the body is doing fine but the mind craves food and all so yeah that's been my experience maybe i will do it again in the future maybe once a year i can do an extended fast 14 days 21 days whatever depending on how i feel it's not necessary but i think overall fasting is beneficial people who fast periodically on a regular basis i think they live longer uh, fasting if you fast more than 3 or 4 days go without food for 3 more than 3 or 4 days then it triggers a process called autophagy in the body in which the body starts destroying all the damaged cells dead cells uh, senescent cells diseased cells precancerous cells it destroys them all and recycles the 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 uh, cellular materials so that's good for the body if 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 somebody has precancerous cells and they fast for let's say 5 days or 7 days it may end up destroying all those precancerous cells and so on and so forth so it has very good benefits it makes your skin look good it overall you know it it if you fast for more than 4 days i believe you rebuild your immune system from from scratch which is again a good thing so overall i mean it's it's always been part of indian culture for thousands of years fasting typically people would fast on certain days of the week and nowadays the west is copying it they call it intermittent fasting and what not yeah so it's all being repackaged in different ways by the west that's what happens so overall i have a significant amount of experience with fasting water fasting going without food for extended period of, periods of time zero calories for 21 days 23 days 14 days and it's worked well for me i've uh, overall felt very positive there are obviously some side effects you're going to lose weight significant amounts of weight in a short period of time you're going to lose strength and uh, there are certain symptoms that you experience that may you you may not enjoy overall but overall it's a very positive thing so that's been my experience vis-a-vis extended fasting i am not sure about brahmacharya that's not something that i am experienced in okay let's take some questions from the live chat shall we let's take some live chat questions if there are any i will take two or three questions before i'm done okay uh, this is by sanathani i prefer physical books too staring at a screen stay strains the eyes no matter no wonder most of the kids nowadays wear thick glasses i agree i agree uh, kids are made to study all the time and typically they are on a screen on a laptop or a tablet or something and close to your eyes and yeah actually even i am near sighted when i go out i wear glasses uh that's because i read too many books as a kid and maybe i kept them too close to my face so it, you get that even if you read books all the time if you don't read them in the proper way which i must have done but yeah yes i do prefer physical books okay any other questions <clears throat> let us see do we have any other interesting questions that uh, what is lucid dreaming what is lucid dreaming i believe it is dreaming in which you participate consciously 
so you're not entirely asleep you're kind of aware that of the fact that you're dreaming of what you're experiencing is not the real world it's a dream and then you can kind of possibly guide it in a certain direction that sort of thing so it's a it's a state in which you are asleep you are dreaming but you are also aware of the fact that you are dreaming and you can take certain decisions and and make the dream go in a certain direction uh that's what they call lucid dreaming i believe we've had this for thousands of years it's called yoga nidra or something uh yeah so that's not something i've ex- ever experienced or tried to experience but it's something interesting something interesting and yeah should try it if you can it's something you have to learn all right what do we have <laughs> how to become a funny person i think the best way to become a funny person is to have a sense of humor i know people who have no sense of humor that is well that's not funny so you want to be funny acquire a sense of humor develop a sense of humor look for the funny things in life yeah and that's how you become funny i suppose i suppose i guess all right let's take maybe one or two more questions uh is there any other question mm, not sure i can see all kinds of questions but uh, seven says best way to detox your body you mean uh, extended fasting water fasting yes certainly it's a very good way to detox your body who were the parthians they were an indo-iranian people the descendants most likely of the rigvedic prithu clan who were among of who were on the losing side of the battle of the 10 kings there was a confederation that fought this battle against the against king sudas and they all lost and one of the members of this confederation was the prithu clan and most likely they are the ancestors of the parthian people who are an indo-iranian people who lived in the western regions of india perhaps uh, yeah the parthians yes okay i guess uh, we are done for today we have again crossed two hours which is always a good thing yeah so thank you very much for all the questions and let's keep on doing this please come up with new questions interesting questions you always have interesting questions which i appreciate very much So thank you very much we are done for this week and I will see you in the next episode very soon until then take care and keep going in whatever you're doing all the best bye